All right. Amen. Well, if you guys have your Bibles, go ahead and open them up to James chapter 5. Uh, really quick, let me introduce myself for those who don't know. My name is Jordan. I'm the Director of Youth and Discipleship here at the Shore. Oh, uh, yeah. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Yes. All five of you. That's awesome. Uh, quick reminder, before we get into the sermon, we are just two weeks away from going to two gatherings here. Two weeks away. So on November 10th, we are going to have, I believe we have a slide here. Maybe not. We have um, a service coming up at 9 a.m. every Every Sunday, 9 a.m., it's going to have full kids' classes available. Also at the 9 a.m. services, we're going to have an opportunity for adult Sunday classes. And that very first, that very first Sunday, November 10th, we're going to have a class called, uh, the res- what's it called again? Do you have the slide? We don't have the slide. There's- The Reason for God. There it is. Yes. The Reason for God starting on November 10th. There's going to be a lot of good topics in there, including one that will be relevant to our sermon this morning on suffering. So you can find more information about that online. And then we're going to have a 1030 service every week as well. That is going to have childcare for kids age zero to four. And then if you're older than that, we invite you to bring your kids into service with you. Cool. Sound good? Exciting? Awesome. Well, kids, really happy to have you in service today. Always great having a family Sunday. But let me tell you something right out of the gate here that I've noticed about the world in which you kids are growing up in compared to the world that I grew up in and your parents grew up in, okay? The world we live in today, it seems like all of mankind's efforts and focus and power has been put into creating a world that increasingly minimizes the need for patience, Think about it, like we are hyper fixated and focused on making sure that we don't have to wait for anything ever. We hate waiting. Like parents, think about the world in which you grew up in compared to the world your kids are growing up in today. Like for example, when I was a kid, I remember every summer, and my mom's in here, so she'll remember this. Every summer, we would drive up to the Okanagan for a summer vacation, and we'd drive to the 100 Mile House. So anywhere from like five, six, seven hours in the car. And do you know what we did to kill time on that road trip? We looked out the window. (laughs) Wait, it gets better. We took our stuffed animals, me and my three brothers crammed in the back seat, and we pretended they were stars in a TV sitcom. And then when we didn't do that, we looked out the window some more, and then we pestered our parents, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Knowing full well we weren't there yet, but there was nothing else to do. Now kids, think about the world you're growing up in now. If you're going on a five-hour road trip, you can watch multiple movies, you can play video games. You don't have to ask, are we there yet? You can just pull up your Google Maps app and be like, Dad, 30 minutes behind schedule. Let's get going here. Come on. It's, the, it's crazy the world that we live in now. Everything is bent on not needing, not requiring patience anymore. Convenience has been inked into so many aspects of life. But the real ironic thing is the more we make the world faster and easier, the more impatient it seems we actually are. Like, think about it. The world's faster than it's ever been. If you like to watch movies, you can watch any movie you want on any device right now. If you're like me and you want to know the score in the Seahawks-Falcons game right now, you can stream it to your seat right now and tell me the score. Just an example. Don't do it. And, like, I don't eat much fast food, but have you noticed that the McDonald's drive through lane has multiple lanes now? Because fast food just wasn't fast enough, right? And look... I'm not an old man or anything, maybe to some of you kids I am, but I remember a time in my life going out to dinner with my family or with my friends and having conversations that ended in no resolution, you know? Like we'd be sitting around the table, be like, who was it that scored the overtime winner, game one, 1994 against the Rangers? 
And if you couldn't remember or bump into someone who knew, you were just left in mystery. But now I just pull up my phone. Oh, Greg Adams, of course, Greg Adams. For the record, I knew that already. <laughs> like this kind of convenience has never existed in the history of mankind, yet at the same time, we seem to be more impatient than ever. Like this is a safe place. How many of you have yelled at your device or your computer screen this week? Huh? Because a document took more than 12 seconds to download or a video took too long to load? That's crazy, isn't it? That we're yelling at a screen? But the thing is, our world, everything's built for speed. Everything's built for, you don't have to wait. We'll create multiple lines, faster internet, more efficient apps, not requiring us to have any patience. But here's the thing. The Lord values patience in his children. And I don't just mean we shouldn't yell at our devices or yell at our kids or yell at our spouses. I do think God cares about those things and he speaks to them. But God is serious about patience because having faith in the world in which we live with the suffering in which we endure requires it. And so the big elephant in the room this morning is a loving God allowing so much suffering. And I'm not going to bury the lead here because the title of the sermon states it. God allows suffering. It's a part of life. Let me show you this. I don't, want, I don't ever want to make anything seem like it's coming from me, Jordan, but let me show you it coming from God himself. I'm just going to rapid fire through a few verses here. They'll be on the screen. 2 Timothy 2 says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Psalm 34 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Psalm 119, It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. 1 Peter 4, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. 1 Peter 1, 6-7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And 2 Corinthians 4, I could do a ton here, but I'll stop here says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And this is weighty, isn't it? And this has long been an elephant in my heart, one that I've wrestled with, one that I've struggled with. And my hope is that today we'll walk out of here not necessarily knowing all that God is doing in this world and why, but rather we would find hope in knowing that he is at work in the mess. And that's hard, isn't it? Like, all you have to do is turn on the news and you'll quickly realize that something's gone seriously wrong in the world. Like, people are dying. Mass amounts of people around the world are living in intense poverty, barely clinging to life. I bet even in this room, there's extremely difficult things happening in the lives of people here. Addiction, anxiety, depression, loss difficult marriages, insane family situations. And it seems like something has seriously gone wrong and we can't help but ask, how can a loving God allow this to happen? And so again, my hope this morning is that through our text in James here and, and just through the Holy Spirit working is that this idea of patience would lead us into finding comfort that God is at work in suffering. That God has a plan in suffering and that something far better than our earthly suffering is coming for us. So three big points to help us. And kids, this is going to be on your sheets here so you can fill in the blanks. Three big points we're going to hit this morning. Number one, be patient in suffering. The Lord is coming. 
Number two, be patient in suffering. God is accomplishing something in you. And number three, be patient in suffering. God's promises are true. Let me pray for us and we'll dive into James 5 here. Uh, Jesus, we just uh, thank you so much that you are real, that you have not, you will not ever abandon us. And Lord, I just pray specifically for those in here this morning who are just struggling and, and have heavy hearts and are going through difficult seasons, Lord, that you would just reveal yourself in a powerful way through this text, through this message, and just remind us that you have not abandoned us and you are with us and you are accomplishing something in this suffering that they may be enduring, Lord. So would you just show up in a powerful way this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So if you have your Bibles, uh, or else it'll be on the screen behind, I'm going to hit four verses in James chapter 5 here and we'll get into this. So James 5, verse 7 says, Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it, until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Verse 10. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. See, since the day that Jesus Christ ascended into heaven, the heart and hope for the believer in Christ has been set on the return of Jesus to make all things new. And if you're not a Christian here, let me unpack that a little bit more for you. So God, out of an overflow of love, He saw us as helpless, as broken, as lost, in need of saving. And so in the greatest act of love ever, he sends his only son, Jesus, to come to the earth as a man, to take on all sin, shame, and guilt that we have, and go to the cross and die on our behalf. So that when God looks at you and I, he doesn't see any of the mess, none of your sin, none of your guilt, but he sees us as perfect and blameless and spotless because of what Jesus has done for us. But that's not all. When Jesus rose from death, he ascends into heaven and leaves us with the Holy Spirit to empower us and strengthen us in times of need. And he says one day he'll be back to remove all darkness from the world and make all things new and perfect once again. See, for the Christian in here, our faith is linear, meaning that we're moving towards something and away from something else. And what we are moving towards is the day that Jesus returns and consummates all he has accomplished on the cross and in his resurrection. That's what we're moving towards. And if we're going to find any hope amidst this life, if we're gonna, we have to concentrate and fixate our eyes and heart around knowing that our Father God is coming back. Now, I remember a time when I was about seven or eight years old. Uh, Mom, you won't remember this. This was a dad experience here. But uh, I remember I was, riding, I was riding my bike in the cul-de-sac across the street, um, really close to the house, like 150, maybe 200 meters, like super close, super safe. I could see the house. They could see me out the window. And I remember the news was something that was always on in our house. And there was one news story in particular that really scared me. And I hope it doesn't scare any kids too much, but if anything, it'll give a good kind of fear. Um, there, was, there was a story on about a guy who was driving around trying to abduct kids, okay? And I remember being a seven-year-old, and this just terrified me. And so there I was riding my bike right across the street. My shoelace came undone, got caught up in my chain. I fell to the ground and my bike fell on top of me and I was stuck. 
I couldn't get the bike off me. I couldn't untangle my shoelace. And I just remember thinking about that news story and freaking out. And I remember screaming at the top of my lungs, hoping my dad would see me in the window so he could come help me untangle my shoelace, pick me up, bring me home where I felt safe. And he did. And this is the hope that we have as Christians, that my father is coming, that my dad is coming to untangle me from the mess that I'm in. Look what Revelation 21 verses 1 to 5 says about what's coming for us. It'll be on the screen. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first, first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is coming for us. We are closer to this now than we were 30 minutes ago when we walked in here. This is where the Christian hope hinges, that he is coming, that he's going to make all things new, that tears mourning, lost, anxiety, depression will all vanish. In fact, even in communion, which we'll celebrate at the end of our service, part of what we're celebrating in the cup is that we are closer to the day when we will drink with God face to face. Not some kind of symbolic drinking with, with God. No, actually drinking with the king of glory. This is a reality. It's not just a hope. Like, you know how time works. Time moves fast, doesn't it? Like I was at Walmart the other day stocking up on uh, Halloween candy for the youth. I was at Walmart and they got Christmas decorations out already. Christmas decorations. I swear I was just on summer vacation. Like we know how time works. It always shows up faster than we think. In two days, it's uh, my wife and I's third year wedding anniversary. I feel like we just got married. But that's how time works. Like all of a sudden it's gonna be 2022. We are moving quickly to this day where Jesus comes back and God wants to remind us to hold tight you're almost there. Be patient. I'm coming. Every bit of difficulty, suffering, weariness, depression, anxiety will be over in that day and there'll no longer be a need to cry out for dad to come and untangle me from this mess because he'll just be there. In fact, Romans 8, Paul says this about our present day sufferings in verse 18. He says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. So be patient. The Lord is coming. But I know that doesn't really answer the question how a loving God can allow so much suffering. Number two, be patient in suffering. God is accomplishing something in you. Look with me at verse seven of James five. He says, see how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it. Until it receives the early and the late rains, you also be patient. And then he ties it back to that first point. He says, establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord is at hand. So be patient. God is accomplishing something in your suffering. And I think in our clearer moments, we get this, you know? Like when everything's going well, when everything's good, this is easy to accept that God's accomplishing something in our suffering. But in more difficult moments, 
this is hard to see. I get it. And let me just be really clear. If you're a Christian in here, suffering is not punitive, meaning God isn't punishing you in your suffering. Now, the Bible does speak to, there are consequences for, uh, for like blatantly living out in sin and disobeying God blatantly. That's a sermon for another day, but just know that God isn't against you in your suffering. Like he's not mad at you for not having a long enough devotional time or for not praying hard enough. That's not how it works. You are fully loved, fully accepted in Jesus Christ if you are a son or daughter of God. But that doesn't mean the Lord doesn't have some work to do in your life. To put it in everyday terms, kids, your parents love you so much. And I bet there's pretty much nothing that you could do to make them stop loving you. Like they love you no matter what. But that doesn't mean they don't have some work to do in raising you. And part of that work is rewarding what is good and right. And part of that work is disciplining. Hebrews 12, 6 says, The Lord disciplines those he loves, and he scourges all those whom he calls sons. And the big picture we have to remember today, and kids, this is on your sheet. You can fill in the blank. We got to remember that suffering for the Christian is not God punishing his children, but God shaping and molding them. Let me say that again. Suffering for the Christian is not God punishing his children, but God shaping and molding them. James has already argued this in, in chapter one. If you know it, it says this, verse two. He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Steadfastness is patience on steroids. And he says, and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So in the midst of your suffering, God is accomplishing something in you. As James 5, 7 says, producing in you fruits of righteousness. And he says, be patient. The Lord is at work in your struggle. Don't lose hope. God is accomplishing something. He's building your confidence. The Lord is at work. He says, be patient because he's coming. I'm not saying it's going to be easy. I am saying he will help you through it and accomplish something in it. All right, number three, this is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this morning. Be patient in suffering. God's promises are true. Let me read verse 10 from James chapter five. He says, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who were made steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So here's what happens in the book of Job. Uh, and keep in mind that James is trying to encourage us with the book of Job. Huh? The book of Job as a book of encouragement? Is that where you would go? The Bible tells us that God is on his throne, okay? And the angels are presenting themselves to God. The accuser walks in. The devil is the accuser. He walks in and God asks the accuser what he's been up to. And, and I always find it interesting when God asks questions because he's God and he doesn't need to know anything. So always pay attention to that. So God asks the accuser what he's been up to. And the accuser says, well, I've been looking at the sons of man. And God says, have you considered my servant Job? And the accuser says, well, of course Job praises you. Of course he loves you. You've given him nothing but good things. He has many children. He has a wife. He's extremely wealthy. You've done nothing but bless him. Of course he's praising you. But if you let me take away all that you've given him, he'll curse your name. And God says, 
okay, what? So God's going to allow Job to lose everything? And so we read it in a very condensed, you know, maybe hours, maybe days. Job loses everything. Like all seven of his children die. All of his wealth vanishes. The only thing he's left with is his wife. And that's not necessarily a good thing in this case. We'll get into that in a second. And what happens when all's gone, all of his kids are dead, all his wealth has vanished. The Bible says that Job tears his clothes, gets in a sackcloth and says, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked will I return. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He's worshiping God. Like what? And then the scene switches and we're back in heaven and God is on his throne. The angels are presenting themselves again and the accuser walks in and God's like, hey, have you seen Job? You took it all away. He's still down there worshiping me. And the accuser says, well, it's because uh, he, he still has his health. That's why he still has his health. If you let me take away his health, he will curse your name. And God again says, okay, but just don't kill him. Okay. Now, a couple things I like to point out about the early chapters of Job are first, the accuser is constantly having to ask God for permission. And that God, even when he grants permission, he gives parameters. So he says, yeah, you can get him sick, but just don't kill him. Like, it doesn't sound like the Hollywood dualism we'd imagine of good versus evil. The devil, the accuser, is like a pet in God's eyes. He's only able to do what God will allow him to do. And so what we know is that the Bible tells us that Job, from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet, he breaks out in boils all over his skin. Just a brutal, brutal disease. And he's sitting there in his sackcloth and ashes and he has a clay pot and he's scraping the boils off of his skin and that wife of his comes in. And here's what I mean. She comes in and she's like, are you still holding on to your integrity? What's wrong with you, Job, you fool? Curse God and die. And Job's just gotta be like, thanks, babe. You know, as I was mourning the loss of all our kids and scraping my skin, I could really use some nagging right now. You know, at that point, I'd just be like, like, take the woman, leave me the dog. At least the dog will be friendly, right? <sighs> Happy anniversary, honey. <laughs> He's a good boy. All right. Ultimately here, though, this is meant to encourage the believers who are reading James. How? Well, the believers who are reading James know how the last five chapters of Job go. And I don't have time to get into it fully today. If you have time this week, read the last five chapters of Job. Those reading this, they would know that God meets Job in his brokenness. That God heals Job. That he restores to Job all that has been taken. And we see the compassion and love of God made manifest amidst the most brutal of suffering. And so that they can look back and we can look back as well upon centuries, if not millennia, of God's faithfulness to the prophets and to Job, the one who has suffered more than anyone in this room. And look, I know we have a lot of loss and difficulty in this room. We have a lot of struggle in here, but I don't know anyone in here who in one day lost seven kids, all his wealth, ended up homeless and dying of a disease. That's why Job is the illustration, because none of us have a trump card over Job, not until Jesus, who takes away the sins of the world. And so James says, consider Job, and he points to Job as a picture of God's mercy and compassion and a reminder to hang in there. God's promises are true. 
Listen, God has never betrayed you. God has never abandoned you. I'm not saying you have not endured difficulty or suffering. I'm not saying you haven't experienced sorrow or really brutal days. I'm not saying there aren't horrible, broken things in the world. All I'm saying is on the last day, on this linear line, the old will pass away, the new will come, and we'll see how this all fits together for the glory of God. But man, it's hard to see. I feel that tension. It's hard to see. Augustine of, of Hippo, a bishop in Northern Africa, he explains our lives as having our faces like scrunched against a stained glass window. Like our view is like right here, scrunched against a stained glass window. And if our faces were jammed that close into it, all we would see is broken glass and jagged edges. And it would look like there had been some kind of terrible accident. But as you pull back away from the stained glass, you come to see that it's really beautiful. And Augustine said that us being finite and, and temporary and not infinite, we see the world with our faces right up against the glass, but God being eternal, he sees how all the jagged pieces fit together to make something beautiful. And so he says, hang in there, be patient. My promises are true. And we see this probably most clearly in the life of Joseph, who is sold into slavery by his brothers and kids. I don't care how annoying your little siblings are. Don't sell your siblings into slavery. But what we know is Joseph ends up working himself out of slavery, and he ends up running a man named Potiphar's house. And apparently, our man Joseph looks real good, because Potiphar's wife she comes right on to him. She tries to pursue him and tries to seduce him. But Joseph sticks to honoring the Lord and honoring Potiphar and even says to the woman, like, it ain't happening. That's a paraphrase. You won't find that. Then finally, Joseph finds himself in the house alone with the woman and she corners him and grabs him. He's able to fight her off, but he leaves his coat behind. And so she falsely accuses him of sexual assault and Joseph is thrown back into prison. From there, he interprets some dreams. To one of the king's counselors, he says, remember me when you get out of here. The Lord has shown me that you're gonna get out of prison. So when you do, remember me and help me get out. And the guy gets out of prison, but he forgets about Joseph. And Joseph stays in the dungeon for years. Years later, through some real sweet acts of mercy and grace from God, Joseph ascends to one of the highest positions in Egypt, like basically second in command to the Pharaoh. And, and those brothers who sold him into slavery show up in desperate need of help as Israel was experiencing a horrific famine. Like people were about to die in mass amounts. And it looked like all of God's promised people were going to be wiped off the earth. But God, through Joseph, constructs a plan to save all of God's people and ensure that there would be enough food so everyone would survive. And here's what Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, 20. He says, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. What a reminder to be patient knowing God's promises are true. The Bible does not promise, and I will not promise you a life of ease, a life without tears, but I will promise you that God's promises are true and he will hold you and he will not let into your life what he will not sustain you in. 
In Tim Keller's book, Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering, he says, some suffering is given in order to chastise and correct a person for wrongful patterns of life, as in the case of Jonah, imperiled by the storm. Some suffering is given to not given not to correct past wrongs, but to prevent future ones, as in the case of Joseph sold into slavery. And some suffering has no purpose other than to lead a person to love God more ardently for himself alone and so discover the ultimate peace and freedom. And I know maybe this scares some of us or freaks us out. Like, we think like, man, if this was happening to me, I just don't think I could get through it. And the reason we don't think that is because God hasn't entered that into your world yet. Once that enters your world, his promises are true. He will bolster you. He will hold you together. I'm not saying he'll get you out of your struggles, but he will get you through it. Do you know how I know this? Like, talk to people around you in this room this morning. Easy application. Just talk to people around you. Like, if you don't know, we have a podcast here at the Shore Church called Shore Stories where we interview people um, and just hear about their story and how God has moved in their life. Listen to the episode with, with, we did with Brad. And man, this is just one example. I know there's a lot in this room, but what Brad and Christina have endured from miscarriage to eventually giving birth to a daughter who didn't survive to finally having a beautiful baby girl and you, you talk to them and, and they'll be honest that this was extremely difficult. But you hear about the hope and love they have for Jesus and how God got them through that. Like, that's not natural. That's not natural. That's God-given, God-sustaining power that he gave them to get through that. And I know there's a lot more stories like that in this room. Malcolm Muggridge, a British Christian journalist and author, he said, contrary to what might be expected, I look back on experience that at the time seemed especially desolating and painful with particular satisfaction. Indeed, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've learned in my 75 years in this world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction and not through happiness. In other words, if there was a pill or medicine that I could take that would eliminate all of the pain and suffering I have ever endured, I would not take it because I would, it would make life banal and trivial and every great thing I have ever done in my life, every piece of character I've ever learned has come through pain and not through pleasure. Man. So be patient in suffering. God's promises are true. He will sustain you through it. I think my favorite characteristic about Jesus is that he's empathetic. Like the book of Hebrews in chapter two and chapter four, they tell us that Jesus didn't just come to earth to die on the cross for us. Like obviously that's a huge piece, right? But Jesus lived a really hard life. And it doesn't make sense if you think about it. Like couldn't Jesus have just been born lived a pretty easy 30 or whatever years, and then died on the cross. But he didn't. Like, he mourned deeply. Like, read the Gospels. He was hated. He was betrayed by people he loved. He was so anxious and stressed out and depressed to the point that he was sweating blood. 
He was beaten, he was mocked, and ultimately was killed in the most horrific of ways. And it doesn't make sense because couldn't he have just gone to the cross and died for us? So why go through all that? Hebrews 2 and Hebrews 4 tells us that he went through everything that we suffer in so that when we are struggling, when we have nowhere to turn, he can sit on the couch next to us and say, I know. I lost. I've been hated. I've been alone. You don't have to do this alone. Run to me. Let me help you. And honestly, I couldn't fathom worshiping a God who didn't understand the suffering that we endure. But Jesus does. I love that. And we can find comfort in him. And it's important for us to remember that God's not causing suffering out of some kind of punishment for us, but rather he's allowing it for a purpose. Like, think about what we just heard in Job. God only allows the amount of suffering that will not accomplish what Satan is trying to do. God allows suffering into his life, and Satan thinks it's going to weaken Job's faith, but it actually strengthens it. The pain creates character and closeness with God in Job's life. And and we read this in Romans chapter 5, that God forms our character to be more and more like Jesus through suffering. And that character produces hope, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, and that hope does not put us to shame. That hope does not leave us empty. Let me tie this all together here and, and start to wrap this up. Here's what I know. For some in here today, you're doing good. Like, all is well. And you're just going to have to tuck this into your back pocket for another day because we already read that suffering is part of what draws us closer to Jesus. And so when that day comes, we need to remember that he's at work and he has a plan to make everything beautiful through that. But I also know, for others in here, you had to drag yourself in here. And this idea of suffering isn't something you'll have to consider in the future, but it's something you're enduring right now. And I wouldn't consider myself to have the spiritual gift of prophecy, but man, did I feel God talk to me this week. And I I heard him saying to me that whoever's in that theater on Sunday, they're not in there by accident. They're in there by God's providence to hear this message, to hear this reminder. He knew you'd be here today. And it was all part of his plan. And this morning is an objective evidence that God loves you so much that he wants to remind you, I'm coming. Hang in there. Don't be discouraged. No, I'm at work in the mess. I can heal in the mess. Even if I don't heal in the mess, I'm doing something. I'm accomplishing something. You have not been forgotten. Don't give up. Run to Jesus. What a gracious God we serve to meet us here today with this reminder that he's at work in the mess and there's a greater purpose in the suffering than we know. And so I know that this elephant in the room isn't necessarily going anywhere as to why God has decided to do it this way, you know? Like why grow us and mold us through suffering? I'm right there with you in that. And I don't have any perfect answers or one-liners for some of the messes around us, you know, to make them go away just like that. 
Like I think about... Like I think about the last, last few years of my grandma's life and how like she just didn't know who any of us were for so many years and how it just like broke my mom, her daughter's heart and broke my grandpa, her husband's heart and I don't have any perfect one-liners to make that go away or to make sense of all that. And I know in here there's some of you walking in seriously difficult things right now, depression, anxiety, you feel alone. And I don't have any great answers to make that go away today. But what I do know is that while we're down here, tangled up, crying out for help, I know that he is coming. And for those who are children of God, he holds us fast to the end and we can find hope in him because his promises are true. John 16, 33, Jesus says, I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, suffering, anxiety, depression, loss, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And that's our hope. That's our hope. Let's stand together and let's respond to this. While you're, while you're standing there, maybe you It might be good to, for you, depending on who you are, to just bow your heads and close your eyes and just fixate your hearts on, on God here. But let me remind you that you are not being punished. You have not been abandoned. God has not betrayed you if you are going through suffering right now. And healing is a real thing. God might want to heal you this morning. But the heart of biblical Christianity is Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. So that means at the heart of our faith is a God who actually suffers. So that even when I don't understand very well why my grandma laid in bed with Alzheimer's for so long, and if it tempts me to think that oh, God can't be real if he allows this to happen, all I have to do is look back at the cross and remember, he does love me so much. And when I still have far too few answers when I dwell on life, I can acknowledge with Job that God may be doing some things that I don't have the wisdom to see. Just like God creates the stars in the sky or the animals of the world that I don't have the power nor knowledge to make. But what I can see is God demonstrating his love to such a profound degree in the cross where he bears my sin in his body so I might live in eternal glory with him. That's the God we worship. That's the hope we have. And we can be prepared to stake everything on this God because of the way he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. Let me close with this quote from Keller's book. He says, Jesus lost all his glory so that we could be clothed in it. He was shut out so we could get access. He was bound, nailed, so that we could be free.
He was cast out so we could approach. And Jesus took away the only kind of suffering that can really destroy you. That is being cast away from God. He took that so that now all suffering that comes into your life will only make you great. A lump of coal under pressure becomes a diamond and the suffering of a person in Christ only turns you into somebody gorgeous. Man, we need Jesus' help. Let me pray for us. Jesus. We just thank you that you are real. You have not abandoned us. You love us unconditionally, Lord. And you're not going anywhere. I pray for those brothers and sisters in here this morning who just had to limp in here this morning and to drag themselves in here, Lord. I thank you that they're here by your providence to be reminded that they are not alone in this. And you ultimately have a plan, though it may be hard to see. And God, I pray this morning that you would just reveal to those in here hurting that you're going to make all things beautiful. And though that might not make the pain go away, I pray that they would just find great comfort and hope in knowing that you are there, you are real, and you are coming to fix all of this. And God, I do ask because you ask us to ask for healing this morning for those who are walking in seasons of suffering and struggle and anxiety and loss. Would you just come beside them? Holy Spirit, we believe in your power that you can make great healing happen this morning. And so I just pray for boldness for those in here walking in seasons of suffering, for them to come and get prayer this morning. And Lord, for the rest of us, I just pray that we would just know that you are real, that you're accomplishing something in the mess. Though we, on our surface view, in our short amount of time we have here on earth, might see the world as broken, help us just have confidence in knowing that you have a greater plan than we can see. We need you. We cannot think this way without you planting that deep in our souls, Lord. So Jesus, we just pray these things in your great name. Amen.